Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode number two in Sound FX. We are going to be exploring the mystical secrets of the shofar as they were taught by the Baal Shem Tov. Now, let me begin by saying that although this may be your first time joining us, you'd best be served by taking the time to watch the previous episode. That's because this is a series and Episode one really is the basis for everything that we're going to be learning and understanding. And before we begin the study of the actual mimer, if I may, I want to bring yesterday's episode to its crowning conclusion. So previously we talked about this notion or idea of mitzvah meditation. Specifically, we identified the concept of Kabbalistic Kavanot. That is to say, in addition to the requirement that we engage ourselves in our Yiddishkeit in a wholehearted fashion, not just with our hands and feet, not just with the ability to act as per the instructions of the Torah, but also to engage emotionally and cerebrally. And that this does not mean the disparate nature of Torah study versus prayer versus mitzvah observance only, but rather that even the performance of any given mitzvah can not only be acted upon or observed in its halachic and proper fashion, but it should be accompanied by a sense of fervor, enthusiasm, joy, a sense of awe and reverence and a sense of mindfulness, an appreciation of who we have the privilege to engage with and serve, and how, by doing so, we are actually making a world of difference. Kavanus Arizal is much deeper than that. As elaborated on previously, the Arizal identified what we will call Yichudim, or supernal, heavenly unifications. Think of it as the system, the operating system, or the iCloud going live. The network that kind of has to snap into place, or electromagnet that needs to be completed. And here is a taught that mitzvahs make an impact and a difference not only in our terrestrial and actual world, but in truth, in worlds that are higher, more sublime, and loftier than our reality as well. Now, that doesn't mean that the mitzvahs were meant for heaven. Without any doubt, they were meant for earth, and mitzvahs can and must be performed in actuality. Having said that, if you are a higher kind of individual, a person who can transcend his or her physical or material limitation to the point that you cease to be caught up in the inhibiting factors of a terrestrial life. It is possible for a person like that to exist within the realm of higher consciousness and actually to immerse his or herself in higher worlds. And then the mitzvahs that are performed here on earth are actually 
bringing about heavenly transformation as well. To be sure, whether you know or don't know the value and the meaning of a mitzvah, the most important thing is that the mitzvah was done. Having said that, we cannot gloss over or ignore the very real spiritual ramifications of higher-minded, elevated conscious kind of people who live not only on earth, but also kind of in the heavens, despite the limitations and travails of their terrestrial journey. So that's what Kavanas Arizal generally are. Kavanas Abal Shemtev seem, on some level at least, to differ. Yesterday I shared with you there are Kavanas Abal Shemtev on the Shefer, which read very much like Kavanas Arizal. In fact, they seem to be almost identical with Kavanas Arizal. That's not what we're learning in this particular rumination. And it's been a a source of query for scholars over the, the decades and centuries. Where exactly do we find Kavonas Harizal here? Or oh, pardon me, the Balshemtev. There isn't even a specific teaching of the Balshemtev per se. We talked about this idea of a tzaika, of a cry that comes from the deepest and most heartfelt of origin. We talked about simplicity. We talked about artless sincerity. We talked about the shattered heart that can proverbially break open all locks and make the heavenly pathways available to us. How does that fit into a rigorous, highly intellectualized analysis of, of the chauffeur? Like, where are we going with this? So I want to make a, a little like, supposition, suggestion, with the disclaimer, I don't know if what I'm saying is a thousand percent accurate. I think that it is. I think it will help us to understand and appreciate what we're embarking on. But I'm also not a thousand percent sure about it. So with that little disclaimer, and... Um, I'll, I'll tell you what I want to share, and I'll try to tell you why I think it, it fits and why it's right. But I'll continue to emphasize that this is only, this is just my take on it. And I could be wrong. With a little preface. So, the Rebbe, in the early years of his leadership, used to come down to the shul in the wee hours of the morning on Simchas Torah. He would come back. Hakafot would finish, sometimes 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. The Rebbe would go up to his room. And then he would come down to the Beit Medrash and he would teach a nigun, teach a song. This went on until the passing of the Rebbe's mother, of Rebbe Tzachana, in 1964. So, in the year 19. 61. The Rebbe taught a tune to the words that are found in many, many Sidurim. 
that are sang in copious congregations at the end of the Shabbat morning services. It's called Shir Hakavod. It's called the, the Song of Honor or Glory. The Lavush speaks about this unique set of lyrics and how powerful and profound and poignant they are. So the Rebbe speaks about this and he mentions the fact that there are many communities that, that sing this and it's found in many Siddurim and Alta Alta Rebbe did not put it into the Siddur that he arranged according to the Kabbalah of the Arizal, but nonetheless, it doesn't diminish from its importance. And the Rebbe said he was going to teach a song that these words could be sung to, a Hasidic tune for these words to be sung to. And, and it, it, seems, it seems that this is a, a song that had a history, a song that was sung by Hasidim and somehow got lost. But the Rebbe introduced it with a story. Now, on this occasion, on Simcha's Torah in the morning, when he came down to the shul to teach the he didn't tell the story in great detail. But on other occasions, he filled in. And the story, I believe, is also found in other sources. The story that Rebbe shared is that it was the day after Yom Kippur. It's called traditionally B'Shem Hashem, in Yiddish, Gotztag. You know, it's like a holy day. Everybody's shiny and clean after a, a day of incredible inspiration and atonement. And it's customary to come to Shul early in the morning. Start the day after Yom Kippur off on what we call the right foot. It's not a lazy day. It's not a day to sleep in and take it easy. So people came to Shul early in the morning and they found that Rebbe said they, or they, they saw a Polish chassid was the words he used. He's dancing around the lectern. And, and he's singing a song. In other words, he'd never got home. He was swept away with the euphoria and the spiritual ecstasy of the climax of Yom Kippur. And, and he began to sing a song of yearning for Hashem. And he kept singing all night. And when people came to show in the morning, they... They found him in this continued state of spiritual euphoria. He had never eaten. Yom Kippur hadn't ended yet for him. So that's the story that I've told. And they've mentioned that on Yom Kippur, every Yid is elevated and becomes angel-like. And when we leave Yom Kippur, and we go, so to speak, back to our ordinary everyday mundane world so we leave that rarefied space that we occupied for the day of Yom Kippur and this chassid was in a state of pining a state of, of yearning as the words go nafshi elecha sarag my, my soul, my very soul thirsts and yearns for you and it expresses itself as Lodat Kol Roz Sodechot, to know all of your secrets. And then the Rebbe taught the song. The Rebbe said that uh, when we leave 
a holy or exalted experience, like Yom Kippur or Simchas Teira, we're left with a yearning, a yearning to be close to Hashem, to know all of the secrets. And that's a positive thing. It's a good thing to have that yearning. It's a good thing not to make peace with a pedestrian, ordinary existence. So on another occasion, they never spoke about this, this, uh, this person. And the story goes, and as I said, I think the story's printed in other sources also, that this was a relatively simple person who saw a family that had been taken into some kind of uh, prison because of monies owed to a, land, a landlord. And there was an enormous amount of money that was due. And the person had just come into some wealth or made some money. The bottom line was he gave everything he owned, everything he owned away to help another person. And he was left penniless with nothing to ransom these lives. And this act of extraordinary, of incredible mesiras nefesh, of such devotion, such commitment, such sensitivity, such, such incredible, really self-sacrificial kindness and charity caused a, a veritable storm in the heavens. And so the person was told that he had earned reward not only in the world to come, in proverbial paradise, but that right here he would be able to experience special blessing. And he was given a choice. He could receive untold riches, or he could experience paradise, the delight and closeness that an ashama that a soul feels with God in Gan Eden, in the proverbial Garden of Eden, paradise of the world to come for Neshamot, while he was still invested in his terrestrial existence. So he chose the latter. And the story went that on that Yom Kippur, as Yom Kippur came to its close, he suddenly had these spiritual horizons open to him. And he began to experience the bliss and the delight that an Ashama feels in the other world. And he didn't want to let go of it. He couldn't bring himself to tear, to tear himself away from that. And so he began to sing this Shir HaKavid, this song, this tune. And he, and he repeated the song and continued to sing it with increasing fervor and intensity and couldn't tear himself away from Shul. And that continued all night long. So, I don't know how accurate this is, but this is what I heard. I heard that it was a buzz. People were talking about this song Initially, the beginning of the story hadn't been shared. It's the person who sang all night. And somebody suggested that it might have been the Rebbe himself that sang Adam's mirrors all night. So at the Yom Tif, uh, table, until 19, 
70, the Rebbe would eat, in 1969, the Rebbe would eat the meals upstairs in the previous Rebbe's apartment, and there would be an opportunity for people to ask questions. There were people at the table, and somebody made kind of a suggestion who it might have been. People were thinking maybe it was the Rebbe himself. And the Rebbe said it was a person who lived before the Baal Shem Tev. That's what the Rebbe said. It was a person who lived before the Baal Shem Tev. Because had he been a chassid who lived after the Baal Shem Tev's revelation, he would have chosen the money because of all of the good things that can be achieved in, the, in our terrestrial world when you have the means to do so. In Yiddish, as I heard it, the Rebbe said, Wenn er wollt gewen noch ein Balshem, wollt er der Herr die Teierkeit von Elam Hase, had he lived after the revelatory teachings of the Balshem Tev, he would have appreciated and cherished the reality of our material world. And he would have realized that the greatest thing of all is to make a difference in this world rather than to experience an outer body reality. There are many beautiful stories about the Baal illustrating this, including a person who once wanted or yearned for Gili Eliyahu. He wanted to experience the personage of the angel, Elijah's revelation to him. And in the end, the Baal demonstrates to him that helping somebody needy is actually greater than Gili Eliyahu. So that's the, that's the story. And again, I'm not... I'm not able to vouch for its authenticity with, with, in an absolute nature, but this is, this is what I heard. And the point is this. The Kavonas Arizal, like the teachings of the Arizal, opened the vistas of spiritual reality to people in a way unparalleled. The Arizal reveals the teachings of Kabbalah in a way quite unlike anything the world had ever seen before. Here is fulfilled the idea that before the coming of Mashiach, that the greatest secrets of the Torah would become available, and that the most mystical and spiritual realities could be attained or apprehended by all kinds of even ordinary, non-saintly or super-pious people. And the Kavonis Arizal, which we talked about yesterday, allow a person not only to perform a mitzvah on earth, but also to achieve something wonderful in the heavens. So now you know what you're doing in the heavens when you perform the mitzvah on earth. You know what this mitzvah corresponds to, and if you are a person who has transcended his or her earthly, materially-minded details, if you can transcend self-honor, self-indulgence, everything with self. Don't ask me about that. I can't tell you. But this is a people, real tzaddikim, transcend self entirely. They become, 
They become transparent. There is no I. You can't offend tzaddikim. They don't have an ego per se. So people who transcend ego, it goes without saying that they transcend entirely the drive for carnal, sensual pleasure. People like this can become aware of a heavenly reality. And when they do a mitzvah on earth, they can also be performing mitzvahs in the heavenly realms. It's kind of like living with one foot in the other world, despite the fact that you're still alive, and perhaps because, only because you're still alive, because the mitzvah can be performed on earth, that's why Yehudim are able to be affected on high. But Kavanah Sabal Shem is a very different kind of approach. It's, it's very similar, but at the same time very different. It's about bringing all of this down to the lowest common denominator. So every Kabbalistic truism of the Arizal has to filter through into Nefesh Adam. So how does, how does this speak to me in my terrestrial life, in my everyday existence, in my pedestrian reality? And how the, the, the most meaningful, uplifting spiritual teachings have impact and transformation in the terrestrial, in the ordinary, in the material. So here's something interesting. In 1963 on Rosh Hashanah, and I mentioned this yesterday, at the very end of the Rosh Hashanah Fabrengen, in general, the Rebbe would not speak at length on Rosh Hashanah. He hardly spoke on Rosh Hashanah altogether. And everything was very cryptic, very short. The Fabrengens were relatively short. They were primarily songful. Many Nagunim were saying, the Nagunim of the Rabbeim. There was a mimer. And there were Sichas, but relatively short. Short Sichas, short talks. At the end of the Fabrengen, it was Shabbos Parshas Hazinu. Forgive me. Not Rosh Hashanah. Shabbos Shuvah. Shabbos Tshuva. The Shabbos in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The Rebbe mentioned that in the, at the Torah reading at Mincha, we're going to be starting to read the final portion of the Torah, Zotah Bracha. And the Rebbe said something very interesting about blessings, specifically as it refers to the Mimer that we are about to study together. Shabbos Shuvah 1963, the Rebbe says, at the end of this Mimer, that is introduced as Alpi Kavonas Abal Shemtev. That the previous Rebbe instructed should be learnt on the morning of Rosh Hashanah. So, and the Rebbe says, emphasizes specifically learnt on the morning of Rosh Hashanah, and I'll come back to this in a moment, not to rely on what was learned previously. So at the end of the Mimer, it says we find that the source of blessings in the Torah is Yitzchak. Not Abraham, Avraham. Avraham Avinu doesn't bless Yitzchak. Rashi tells us, quoting our sages, that he was concerned. He foresaw toxic progeny coming forth from Yitzchak. Esau, Esau, terrible guy. And he didn't feel comfortable bestowing the blessings, even though Hashem had said that he gave the power to bless to the hands of Avram. He said, Let the master of the blessings give the bracha to whoever he sees fit. And God himself blesses Yitzchak. 
during the aftermath of Father Abraham of Avram Avinu's passing. Yitzchak bestows the blessings upon Yaakov. That's a story in and of itself. Esau, Esau desperately wants the brachas, and Yitzchak planned to give them to him. But Rivka had other ideas. And contrary to the misnomer or misguided notion that Judaism is a chauvinistic story from the beginning, it's filled with chauvinism and, and men are supreme and women are looked down at, which is patently ridiculous when you think about the fact that there is a showdown between Avraham and Sarah and God comes down on Sarah's side, which chauvinist would have come up with that. And then in the next generation, Yitzchak wants to give the brachas to Esau. But Rivka knows better. And Rivka is the one who decides how Jewish history will unfold. Rivka is the one who choreographs all of the events that represent really the continuous development of the future nation of Israel. So Yitzchak gives those brachas. Now it's true that Yaakov gives brachas, but Yaakov's brachas are more like he wants to talk about the future, and he speaks about the possibility and the potential that he sees in each of the different tribes. It's not a bracha in the full sense as Yitzchak did, where Yitzchak actuates where he concretizes the deepest spiritual energies into the most physical, material reality. so to speak, the fat of the earth, which is the theme of his blessings. So the Rebbe says, in, in biblical literature, in the Torah, nobody but Yitzchak does that. Avram doesn't do it. Sarah doesn't do it. Rivka makes it happen. Yitzchak does it. Yaakov doesn't do it. And although the last portion of the Torah, Vizot Bracha, is all about the blessings that Moshe Rabbeinu gave to the Jewish people, this too presages Jewish history, calls forth the spiritual potential, but doesn't concretize things in the most material sense. Moshe Rabbeinu himself, when he was faced with a kvetching nation, who said, where's the beef? He said, my only bossa. What am I, a butcher or something? I'm supposed to give you meat. The Alter Rebbe explains this in Lakota Torah as Moshe saying, I'm a teacher of Torah. I'm not a purveyor of fine meat. Where does this desire for materialism come from? I, I, I don't know how to provide material things. <laughs> I provide spiritual blessings, inspiration, guidance, Teaching, Moshe's Rabbeinu, he's our teacher. So this idea of mitala shomayim u'mishmane ha'aretz, of plentiful precipitation and a rich, not a rich yield and, and harvest, this is, this is Yitzchak's bracha. And the Rebbe goes on to say that even though ultimately all brachas have to come through Moshe Rabbeinu and the Moshe Rabbeinu of every generation, that's Moshe Rabbeinu who becomes the conduit linking us to Yitzchak's brachas, the fact remains that it's Yitzchak who brings the blessings in real time in the material, literal, actual sense. And the Rebbe links that to the essence of Judaism. 
and the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov about the beauty of the material, everyday, terrestrial, dense reality that we occupy. How it is the only stage upon which the will of Hashem can actually unfold. And the point that, um, that I think this, this uh, leads us to is that the Kavanas of Hashem very different than the Kavanas Arizal, are not about going to heaven. It's not about performing the mitzvahs in a heavenly sense, but rather it's about bringing the mitzvahs down to the lowest common denominator. It's about taking the deepest, the most sublime, and bringing it into the most pedestrian, everyday, and ordinary, so that the ordinary becomes extraordinary, so that the world can become the place it was always destined to be. So where's the Kavanas HaBal Shem Tev here? The Kavanas HaBal Shem Tev is in taking the sublime spiritual truths of the shofar, the secrets of the shofar, and actuating them, and bringing them forth in the most literal way, in a way that leads us, you and me, to live the kind of life that Hashem wants us to live. Becoming the kind, generous, sensitive, compassionate, and very, very punctual and carefully observant Jew that every one of us can and should become. And all the inspiration, and all of the yearning and all of the spirituality that is the shofar and its call is actually a call to translate that guttural sound into what you might call the everyday music of life. So before we begin the mimer, with this perspective, I want to make one final little preface, share one final little thing, and then we'll get into it. There's a mimer from the Alta Rebbe that was delivered in the year 1810. The mimer, really quite a, a fascinating mimer, opens with the words, What is this business of immersing yourself in the study of Hasidus? What is it? What's the point? That is to say, when you study Kabbalah in the purest sense, the ultimate goal is to reach the level where you can start to live in that spiritual world. You can start to see that spiritual world. You become aware of the spiritual alter ego of all the material realities you're involved with, especially the mitzvahs that you're performing, leading you eventually into the world of Yehudim and living kind of with one foot in the heavens. But Chassidus is a different direction. It takes these sublime mystical truths and translates them into Avedas Hashem, into Nefesh Adam, showing you how you are a mirror of those truths. It's a very fascinating rumination. 
And there's two points that I want to share with you from this mimer. In this Sefer HaMemarim Tov Kofayin, on page Memtes, the Alter Rebbe says that the study of Hasidus prior to our involvement in davening and prayer is supposed to humble the animal, selfish soul, inhibit it with the greatness of divinity, not by beating it down and telling it how ugly and how selfish it is, but rather to focus the person on higher truths to the point that he starts to become ashamed of the everyday silly reality. And, and that creates you know, this uh, sense of awareness, elevated sense of awareness of, of what's really important in life. Dr. Rebbe suggests that the concept of the blessings of Shema, which don't take very much time, could have worked for loftier souls who were less overwhelmed by materialism than we are. But in our world and in our reality, we need to work much harder at this. And he says that's why eventually Pesuka de Zimmer, the verses of praise, were introduced. And on a mystical level, Kabbalistically, the idea of Pesuka de Zimmer is the Zamed Aritzim, to cut away the thorns and to create a greater clarity on the purpose of life. So the Alter Rebbe says that in doing so, our minds become properly focused, and this kind of awareness, when it floods our hearts and minds, serves It serves to inhibit to weaken and to thin the impact and the strength of the animal. An animal isn't bad if it's an animal. But if the person behaves like an animal, that's a problem. The animal thinks about one thing, me. When a person behaves like an animal, becomes a bull in a china shop, eats what he wants, when he wants, and where he wants, and how he wants, regardless of who is hurt in the process, then he's behaving like an animal. And that's very inappropriate, because a person should be a mensch. But you can't be a mensch by accident. You have to work at developing fine character traits. You have to work at being a better person. It doesn't come naturally. So when we, are, we overwhelm the animal soul with the profundity of holy information with a profusion of higher consciousness it serves to weaken the animal soul the, the ego and the arrogance and that calls forth or allows for the strength the intensity of the godly soul to reveal itself and the Rebbe says ki chulsha de gufa tukfa de nafsha when there is a weakening of the body's hold, then there is a strengthening of the soul's expression. And so we cut away the negativity, and it's liberating. It's liberating. It makes us, it allows us to experience the weightlessness that the soul yearns for. And so we could daven with greater fervor. 
And then the Alter Rebbe later, at the end of the Maimer, talks about another approach to the Eisek and Yigiyeh Bedvara Hasidus, to the engagement and involvement in the teachings and the words of Hasidus that one hears and studies. And he says that the information about higher and deeper spiritual truths stimulates the soul and activates its organic yearning and desire. So one is a question of kind of getting the body out of the way to be mevatel the materialism, to try to vaporize the ego and the desire of selfish gratification. And the other is more holistic, where you're strengthening the spirit to the point that the spirit spills forth, expresses itself with great fervor. How does that really work? So, if you ever learn Hasidus, it works. It does work. <laughs> it, it works when you immerse yourself in, in, in learning about higher things, higher ideas and ideals in a way that you actually understand. You're not just reading words. It makes sense to you. It has a way of uplifting a person. And if you've ever studied Hasidus for 15 minutes or a half hour or more prior to your prayers, you will see your davening has changed. It's inevitable. If you insist that you, you studied Hasidus for a half hour and it didn't work, try 45 minutes. Try an hour. The Rebbe Rashab once said that there are three things that are guaranteed. He said money makes you crazy, alcohol makes you drunk, and Hasidus will refine you. And if you'll see a person who has money and hasn't lost his mind, he doesn't have enough. Enough money will make anybody crazy. Somebody who's had a drink, two or three, and isn't intoxicated, he doesn't have enough. And a person who learns Hasidus and hasn't become refined, said the Rebbe Rashab, he didn't learn enough. So that's the nature of learning Hasidus. And I want to humbly suggest to you that it's not just about knowing this mimer. It's about learning this mimer. You can't learn it Rosh Hashanah in the morning unless you spend the time to learn it before. But when you learn on Rosh Hashanah in the morning about the spiritual truth of the Shoifer, that is, that was the Kavanah of the Baal Shem Tev. Because in turn, what this is all about is concretizing and actualizing the deepest and profoundest spiritual sentiments in the most literal of ways. So, with this secondary little preface, and again, this is, this is not, this is a little bit original. It's, I'm, you'll forgive me, I'm telling you what I think. I, I'm trying to teach this mimer, so I, I thought this was an appropriate way to, to frame it and present it. And if I'm mistaken, you'll forgive me, but that's just my, my humble little offering. And with no further ado, the mimer now begins addressing the unspoken sounds of the soul. Before we talk about the shofar, and before we talk about how the shofar is able to bring about a marvelous and magnificent metamorphosis, before we talk about that, we need to have a preface. It's like, I can't give you the big picture, or I can't give you the details before I fill in the big picture. So, 
So sometimes an artist wants to paint. He's, he's got to first you know, create a foundation. First he's going to whitewash the, 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 the canvas. And after he whitewashes the canvas, he, he creates maybe the bigger kind of setting. And then he can go into the details. So the Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe here is going to begin to create a, a, a reorientation of perspective. He's going to share with you mystical secrets that have to be properly understood. And once you understand these things, once you're in the know on these mystical secrets, then you'll be able to appreciate what he has to tell you about the chauffeur. But if you can't appreciate what we're about to learn, if you don't know yet, if you don't get this preface first, then the information about the chauffeur is not going to be meaningful. There's a number of prefaces, but this is the first one. But before I go further, I just want to say to you that um, apropos to yesterday's um, details about the shofar, the tzaika, uh, the cry, the unlettered and, and sincere, artless cry that comes from within, that the shofar represents, as the previous Sabbath documents it. Now, what do you need a shofar for? Why doesn't everybody just yell on top of their lungs? <laughs> it should be a mitzvah to pray from a siddur a whole year. And on Rosh Hashanah, we should just come to Shul and scream on top of our lungs. No, that doesn't work, right? Of course it doesn't. And it's not what it's about. Although there is a beautiful story about the Baal Shem Tev, about a town that was praying and everybody was worried. And some say it's a story about the Baal Shem Tev's own Shul. And, and he said there was a decree in heaven and the prayers were with great intensity and great fervor and great enthusiasm and, great, and nothing's doing. The Baal Shem Tev's praying and... And then a, a farm boy walks in. And the farm boy was a very simple boy. And he didn't really know much about being Jewish. He just discovered that he's a Jew. And he wants to participate. He doesn't know how to. He, just, he doesn't even know the Hebrew alphabet. All he knows how to do growing up on a farm is mimic the animals. And he begins to make animal sounds, guttural animal sounds. The people are aghast in the Boshantasis. Leave him. His prayers are more sincere than ours. And it's his noises that in the end make the difference in heaven. So why don't we just make noises? We use a shofar. Nowhere does the Torah say, make guttural noises. So I think when you learn this, you'll start to see that we're going to talk about the unspoken sounds, and we're going to talk about inner voices, and we're going to talk about inarticulate expression, that evolves into articulate communication, but it's all a, a metaphor, if you will. It's not, that's not in and of itself what this is about, and certainly that's not per se what the chauffeur is. Okay, unspoken. So, yesh lahak dem first have to preface, hakdama achas in koil v'dibur. Dr. Rebbe says there are two realities we're going to be talking about today. One is audibility, sound, not just any sound, human sound. The sound that comes from within a person. That's called coil. A person can make noise. He didn't say anything. And then there's dibur. And then there's meaningful speech. Effective communication. When you articulate just with yourself. But if, if you have no voice, for example, and you're making movements and you're, you're not saying, it doesn't work. If you lose your voice, you can't speak. You need a voice to be able to speak. And if you sound like a robot, or your voice is metallic, 
or you're not really interested in what you're saying or doing, it's pretty obvious. Much of the message is not found in the words or structure of the sentences, but rather the inflection, the sound of the words. And so you could speak beautiful words in a very ugly way. You can yell and scream in aggressive fashion. You can say the nicest things. They're not going to make anybody feel good. You can say things that are less than kind. But if you say them with kindness, and you say them in a sweet, constructive way, they can actually become very meaningful. So both are necessary. We need the sound, audible sound, but we also need articulate communication. That's the most effective way to do it. You have an inflection, you have fervor, you have a passion, you know what you want to say, you care about what you're saying, and you say it eloquently. Koil v'dibur. They are not one and the same. And yet, v'hu says the Alter Rebbe, asheranu reim b'koil v'dibur, sheyesh b'chinas memutza ben akil v'dibur. There is a middle ground that isn't inarticulate audibility alone, and yet at the same time, it's not articulated communication. You can't call it sound, uh, uh, an unformed sound. It has a form to it. It has some kind of expression to it. And despite the fact that it comes with some kind of expression, despite the fact that it is somewhat expressed in some kind of frame, it nonetheless is not an articulate expression. It's not language. It's somewhere in the middle. What does this mean? The hine amitas in who koil poshut. Murkov, Murkov Maimer. When we talk about the sound that emits from a human being, so the sound in and of itself is a conglomerate. There are different elements within sound. Today we have phenomenal technology that can actually isolate and independently identify different sounds that are included in a sound. But the sound is a very complex composite of different sounds. Venikra, this koil pashut, which is at the same time not as simple as you might imagine, that, that has a number of different decibels or, or tones being expressed at once, is called ruach or hevel belvad. It's, it's just a it's just an expression. It's just a sound. It's a cry. It's not articulate communication. In other words, even a guttural cry is still a cry. It still says something. Here's a silly metaphor. Somebody once asked me, so 
how do you say in Yiddish, excuse me, sir, I really did not understand what you just said. Would you mind repeating yourself? So I start to say, translate the words into Yiddish. And he says, no, no, no. You don't know how you say, excuse me, sir, please repeat yourself and understand you in Yiddish? I said, um, what do you mean? He said, ah, anybody who speaks Yiddish knows what that means. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to say anything. Somebody said something, you say, ah, you just said, I didn't understand what you're saying. Please repeat yourself again. There was a very well-known chassid living in Brooklyn who was an extremely wealthy individual. And he was very uh, judicious in the causes, the charitable causes that he gave to. But people would always ask him, you know, he was known to be a wealthy person. And he was also hard of hearing. So the, the joke, which I'm not sure wasn't only a joke, or may have had some truth attached to it, is that people sometimes would come and make a request for his largest, and he would say... Ah, harnessed. Can't hear you. Can't hear you. Sometimes he'd say the words or just make with his ear or make a funny, and people would repeat themselves. And if, uh, if they still repeated themselves on the third time, then he would say, usually if I don't hear the first time, I don't hear the fourth time either. <laughs> this is a nice way of, or maybe not such a nice way of saying, um, this is not going to yield any fruit. At any rate, the, the point that we're making here is that there is an element within speech that's guttural. It's an unspoken form of speech. It has sound. It has a Doppler, if you will, effect. Somebody might even know what you're trying to say or not. But it is an articulate speech. So that's coil. That's what's called voice. You could hear a voice sometimes. And you don't hear the words, but in the voice you heard, you heard what you needed to hear. Here's a, perhaps a lame or maybe not such lame metaphor. Moshe Rabbeinu is in a heavenly reality on the top of Harsinai, receiving the essence of Hashem's Torah for 40 days and for 40 nights. Yehoshua, Joshua, his loyal disciple, has camped at the foot of the mountain and waits for his master to return. Moshe Rabbeinu is rudely interrupted and he gets ejected from this idyllic heavenly reality because the people have sinned. They've tragically built a golden calf that they're worshipping now. And Moshe Rabbeinu heads down the mountain. He didn't take an elevator because he had to take steps to fix the situation. Haha, ha, funny joke. Anyway, without at any kidding, Moshe Rabbeinu comes down the mountain, he shatters the luchas, and... Yahushua says, there's a voice. There's koil bamachna. There's a voice. There's, some, there's sounds. Something's going on. And they refer to 
the voices, the exultant voices of the victor, the pitiful voice of the vanquished. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, no, no. This is not koil, anais gvura or anais chalusha. This is not expression of might, of victory. It's not an expression of one who is weak, captured, vanquished. Koil anais says, I hear the sounds of blasphemy. And you know the rest of the story. Moshe comes, stands down the people. And he takes many, many steps to fix the situation. He heard a voice. He correctly interpreted the sounds that he was hearing. Mind you, we had advance notice. Yoshua heard voices. He couldn't put his finger on it, couldn't identify what it exactly was. There were voices, there were sounds. The coil has some kind of body, if you will. It has, it, has a, it has a body of expression. It's just not clearly articulated sentiments. It's not what we would call communication. At least not sophisticated communication. It's words that are unspoken. And then there's Bechinas Hadibur. Then there are the words that are articulated, the words that are spoken. And who dafke bebchinas havaras oisius? So whilst the unspoken words do not require language, you hear somebody scream in pain, it doesn't matter if you speak the same language. You hear somebody excited, happy, euphoric, expressing joy. You hear you, you, ululating sounds of happiness. You don't have to speak that person's language to know that they're very happy. You don't need sophisticated or eloquent communication. You don't need language. We know what the sound of pleasure is like. We know what the sound of pain is like. Small babies express their pleasure and their pain. But they don't have language. We as human beings can not only grunt, we can not only express ourselves blissfully or cry out in pain, we can also articulate ourselves. We can speak, we can use language. The language is really interesting because the letters and the words are not our own. We're using, so to speak, somebody else's language. It's a pile of alphabet soup. It's a collection of Scrabble letters. But you string them together. You choose how to articulate yourself. Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm inarticulate. It wasn't because he didn't have anything to say. It was because he was so much higher than everybody else. He couldn't anchor himself, limit himself to language and communication. 
Sometimes when you're feeling something very intense, you don't have the words. Have you ever heard somebody say, I have no words? I was once at a, a very, very painful shiva house. I don't want to go into the details. Very painful. Every shiva house is awful, but this was awful within awful. A member of the family was dying, and a perfectly healthy member of the family suddenly killed. It was awful. And I said to a colleague, a friend of our family, I said, I have no words. No words. And I don't remember if she said it to me or said to my wife that if, if Mendel Kaplan has no words, it's really a messed up situation. Some people have words. God gave me words. I'm usually somewhat articulate. It's a gift. Some people have an easier time finding words, utilizing language, and expressing themselves. And some people are less articulate. doesn't mean they're not brilliant. It doesn't mean that somebody with words is smart. Some people have the gift of gab. They have the ability to express themselves. Not everybody's a Shakespeare. <laughs> Not everybody's a poet. Some people have the ability to articulate themselves verbally, whereas other people's gift is with the pen or quill, or in today's day and age, the word processor. That's where they're able to articulate themselves. They have this mastery of language. Some people have mastery of one language and aren't very articulate in other languages, even though they speak them. It's a complicated thing. That is all related to Dibur. That's not Koil. Koil is a natural, heartfelt expression, an organic expression. Dibur, speech, Spoken words is havoras oisius mechulokim. That's when you have letters, individual characters of alphabet that are nimshachim ba'ifin shoynim imurkovim that become conjoined in a variety of unique ways. So we have letters, characters, or syllables, and the way we string those syllables together, the way we enunciate the words. They take wings and become expressive. Venimza. So if you really think about it, the mohus hadibur, the essence of the spoken or articulated word, is rochik memohusa koila poshot. It's very distant. It's much less sincere. It's much less organic. It's much less natural than a cry that comes forth from the heart. When the baby purrs in pleasure or cries in pain, you know exactly what the baby wants or is saying. But when a person has to express themselves using language that is outside of them, they have to kind of limit the intensity of the moment so that they're able to find the words. If you will, it's a much lower or less personal kind of expression. It's the words you chose, but it's not the sounds you made. 
So you can be a wordsmith and you could choose words, but you're still choosing somebody else's words or words that are syllables and characters that are intrinsically lifeless. You string them together. And you only have the words you have. You only have the letters or syllables you have. You don't have other letters or syllables. So you're highly limited. I once heard that Shakespeare would make up words because he was dealing with a limited English language, so he would create his own words. And I guess if you're Shakespeare, you can play that game. I tried, it doesn't work. I say you should holify things. Out of your mind, ridiculous. You can sublimate things, you can sanctify things. I don't know, why can't you holify it? Because <laughs> you can't, because it's not in English. It's not an English word. So words are very far, if you want to speak about it from a, an intrinsic qualitative level, from a, the purest of expressions. Words are not the purest of expressions. Just because you chose a nice Hallmark card doesn't mean that you have a heart that really brims with love. And yet, <laughs> in as much as audibility and articulate communication are not one and the same, they're still kind of conjoined at the hip. That is to say, even, even guttural sound has to use some kind of syllabilic expression. And it is by nature positioned to express itself in syllables and in spoken language. The nature of our voice is that it is perfectly designed, almost predestined, to turn into speech, into words. And here the Alter Rebbe quotes a Zohar. The Zohar says that koil and dibur, that sound and words, are like a klal and a pnat. There's a plurality and there's a details. A nose itself doesn't say anything. A nose on a face is meaningful. That doesn't mean the nose is the eyes. The eyes are the eyes, the nose is a nose, an ear is an ear, and if you put them in different places, you'll have a very strange looking creature. <laughs> and yet, the details are all part of a bigger picture. When you look at somebody's face, you don't say, what do you see there? Well, I see a nose, I see eyes. Um, come to think of it, there's a mouth and ears. You wouldn't say that. When you look at somebody, what do you see? You see a face. You identify the details with their overarching, what you would call, plurlat, 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 okay, I give up. The plurality of, of what you see. The whole picture. The picture is made up of the details. So you can't have the plurality without the details. You can't have a, a faceless face, a face without eyes and ears and nose, but you aren't looking at eyes and ears and nose, you're looking at a face. You can't have words without audibility. You can't have, you can't have communication without sound. And at the same time, you also never have sound without some kind of syllable that frames it. The prat tzarech leklal, so, we're kind of 
we're highlighting this, the, the disparate nature of sound, of audibility, and of communication. Words unspoken versus words spoken. And yet as different as they seem, they're really not that different altogether. So the Alter Rebbe is going to suggest that there's a meeting point. There's an overlap between these two very distinct orbits. The orbit of sound and the orbit of communication or articulation, they overlap. And that will be the subject, with Hashem's help, of tomorrow's presentation, the letters of light. I hope that you enjoy this. I hope you're finding it a little bit uplifting, inspiring, informative, thought-provoking. So here's the thing. Chabad Hasidus, by its very definition, does not contain quick little jingles. Beautiful little vertelach, an aphorism, just a, if you want to really appreciate something, says the Alter Rebbe, you've got to stay with me. We have, to, we have to immerse ourselves and educate ourselves, create a whole new perspective on things. And then the pieces all come together. And that process is called learning chassidus. And the process of learning chassidus in a full-bodied way, in, in a way of chachma, bina, and das, in a way which is both creative, analytic, and pragmatic at once, you really understand and develop an appreciation for what's going on, if you spend the time on it, and then you review it, and you learn about it, and you contemplate, you think about it, then in the morning of Rosh Hashanah, you can spend an hour or two, and you can review everything that's learned, and as a result, fulfill the intention of the Baal Shem Tev's mystical ideas and meditations that will elevate the experience of Tekiah Shofar for all of us if you like this. And if you'd like to, I'd appreciate it if you hit like. Share this. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so or get your friends and relatives to subscribe to youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. With Hashem's help, we will continue to move ahead in this mystical and spiritual journey, discovering secrets of the shofar and appreciating the Bachshemtiv's ideas on this marvelous mitzvah that opens our year on the highest of notes. May Hashem help us that very soon and before Rosh Hashanah we should hear the great shofar sound, the shofar of Mashiach, Bimheira, Ubi Amenu. Amen. Thanks so much for joining.